That young man had been sentenced. It wasn't the president that did it. Mother of that young man was very concerned. She did not want to lose her son. She did not want to see him leave this world that way. So she went right to the president and she begged for his life. Begged that the president would step in. Begged that the president would pardon him. The president, looking into the eyes of that mother, had his heart just softened. He decided to grant her wish. But after he did, he made this statement. I still wish we could teach him a lesson. I wish he could hang just a little bit. Isn't that interesting? I wish he could hang just a little bit. Now, hanging a little bit is like being a little bit pregnant. It's just not possible, but that's what he was asking for. I wish he could hang just a little bit, teaching something, get his attention, change his perspective. And when we hang just a little bit, that's exactly what happens. Some of you have experienced that. Maybe it happened in a doctor's office where you were waiting in the exam room and the doctor seemed to take forever and when he finally walked back in and sat down across from you, he said, I have bad news. It doesn't look very good. At that moment, it seemed to you like the rope was around your neck and, and you were hanging. And it may have lasted for a while and, and you got involved in the fight for your life and then the doctor told you that you were cured and the noose was loosened and the rope was taken off of your neck and during those times... You felt like it was just never, ever going to end. Maybe it happened when a, a friend called you and said that they had received that news from the doctor and the doctor had said that it was malignant and they were going to enter a fight for their life and you fought alongside them, praying for them every day, pleading with God, asking that He would spare their life and it, it seemed to you like you were hanging just a little bit. Or it happens when husbands come in and sit down with their wives and say, it's over. I know we've spent 30 years together, but it's over. The noose goes around that lady's neck. Or when wives come in and they sit down with their husbands and they say, I don't love you. I've never loved you. It's over. The noose goes around his neck. Same thing happens for parents when they see their children make bad choices and their children seem mired in those bad choices. And it doesn't appear that they're ever going to come back. And when they finally do, the rope loosens around their neck and they're able to take it off. But those years while their child was doing the things that they were doing, it was like hanging a little bit. In those moments when it, it feels like we are going to absolutely lose our lives... The rope is too tight and there is no way to get out of it or get around it. God is still God. And He is still doing good things in our lives. Oftentimes, what God is doing is changing our perspective so that we no longer rely on ourselves, but we get to a place where we are willing to rely completely on Him. And that noose helps accomplish that. It really does. There's no question about it. Spiritually speaking, God has to do that to us just to get us back to a place where we are paying attention to Him, where we are listening to His words and we are following His path. Because without it, we may just go off on our own. Sometimes God has to put that noose around our neck for just a little while because Satan has come on the scene and he is trying to steal from you. He's trying to take the life away from you that God has promised you in Jesus Christ. Now, He cannot take eternity away from you, but He's trying to steal from you the life that God has promised. So when we hang for just a little bit, we get that life restored. One of Satan's most powerful tools is not death, but it is complacency. 
If he can get us to a place where we view our faith with total complacency, we're no longer trusting God, all of the shine is gone from our faith, all of the sparkle is gone from our faith, Satan wins. Complacency leads to bitterness. It leads to a complete lack of caring. Complacency takes us down roads that Satan loves. For a lot of people that have had a long-time relationship with God, complacency comes just as dust begins to cover your walk with the Lord. You don't see anything new in it. You don't see anything fresh in it. God isn't stretching you or you're not being stretched by Him. That dust settles in and all of the newness, all of the freshness is gone. So when the rope goes around your neck and you hang for just a little bit and you begin to trust God again, the sparkle returns, the newness returns, and the dust gets blown off of your faith. A study of the book of Revelation has the ability to do that for us. For some people, it places a noose around their neck and it causes them to say, I'm not sure that I am walking with God and I want to get that fixed. And so they'll do whatever it takes to get it fixed. For some people that have known that they've been walking with the Lord forever and nothing has ever compromised that, a study of the book of Revelation will cause them to say, Lord, I'm listening and I want to be counted among your number and I want to make sure that my name is not only in the Lamb's book of life, but I am doing everything that I am supposed to do, everything that you called me to do and everything that you gifted me to do. The sparkle returns. The shine returns. But there might be a little bit of a tightening of that rope around your neck as you study books like this. It is a wonderful, wonderful study. I am looking forward to it. Like I told you last week, if you were here, I am breaking several rules of preaching as we go into this. Number one, a lot of people tell you you should never preach the book of Revelation. I'm going to preach the book of Revelation. It's in the Bible. We're not going to ignore it. We're going to look at it. We're going to study it. We're going to pick it apart. It's going to be great. And then people today would teach preachers that they should never preach a sermon series that lasts longer than four or five weeks. This one's going to last 25 or 30 weeks. I have no idea how long it's going to take, but it's going to be good. We're going to break all of those rules, and we're going to have the, the rope tightened around our neck a little bit from time to time. But what we're going to see is this. We are going to see Jesus Christ. We are going to hear Him. We are going to experience Him. It's going to be a lot of fun. It really is. Hopefully you'll see some things that maybe you've never seen before. Hopefully you're going to hear some things that you have never heard before. By the way, here's a little trivia for you. The book of Revelation was the very first book of the Bible that was read out loud among all of the first churches. The letters were sent out to other congregations and they would read them and many of them would hold on to them for a long time while they translated them into other languages. But the book of Revelation was the first one to hit every one of the churches. And when they got it, they read it out loud. Every word of it. Every word. So a few moments ago when Steve and Patty stood up and they read the first eight verses of the first chapter, they set a course for us that we're going to follow all the way through this study. By the time we're done, Libby Christian Church, like the early church, will have heard every word of the book of Revelation read out loud. And if you listened, if you listened to what they read, the Bible says there's a blessing for those that do that. We're going to receive that blessing as we hear the words of this book. I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. But in order for us to get into it and really understand it, we have to dispel some myths 
These myths actually came from man getting involved in the translation of the book of Revelation. It is a pretty straightforward book, although as you read it, if you take out just parts of it, it could be very confusing. And you could find yourself saying, what in the world is he talking about? What is this section about? Well, hopefully we'll make some of that clear to you as we go through it. But in order for it to become clear, you have to make sure that you're looking at it the right way. So we have to dispel some of these myths. The first one is called the Praetorist viewpoint. The Praetorists believe that everything that is prophesied in the book of Revelation happened prior to the year 70 AD when the Romans came into the city of Jerusalem, decimated that city and destroyed Herod's temple which was also God's temple. They believe that everything was fulfilled at that point. It is an illusion at best to believe that. In fact, the illusion might look kind of like this. This is called the stereokinetic effect. Back in the 1940s, a man in Germany came to the conclusion that if he drew a series of circles in the right way and then he set them to motion, it could give the three-dimensional appearance. If you look at these circles, that's exactly what you can see. It looks like a cone rather than a series of circles. In fact, it looks like some of those circles are coming right out at you. How many of you can see that? People see exactly what it is, but the truth is, it's just a series of circles. That's all it is. It is an optical illusion. The Praetorist movement, the Praetorist approach to the book of Revelation is an illusion. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation to see that. There are prophecies that have not been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has not returned for His church. The temple has not been rebuilt. Those are just a few of the prophecies contained in this book that are still out there waiting to be taken care of. So for the praetorist to say that it was all done prior to the year 70 AD, it's an illusion. That's all it is. You have to be careful that you don't buy into it. You have to be careful that you study the book in its entirety so that you can dispel the illusion side of it. Well, there are some others out there as well, like the historical point of view. The historical point of view says that all the book of Revelation is, is a chart of church history from the time of the apostles up to today. They would move even out of the realm of church history into the realm of practical history. The people that view it from this standpoint would tell you that they can discover all kinds of things in the book of Revelation, like the fall of the Roman Empire. They could say that in the book of Revelation, you can historically see the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. They would tell you that they have found in the study of the book of Revelation, the rise of Islam. They would tell you that they can even find things like the French War, the French Revolution. Well, if you want to measure it through things like that, all you're doing is finding a, a new kind of illusion that you place over the book. Maybe it would look like this. This is called motion binding. Most of you, as you look at this, would believe that there are two sets of independent moving lines. How many of you would say there are two sets of independent moving lines? Most people would believe that. As you look at it, that's what the illusion causes you to believe. But here's the truth of it. When we place the truth over it, you can see that it's a diamond that is moving. Look at it real closely. It's an optical illusion. That's all it is. When the truth is placed over it, it changes the perspective. When you place the truth of Revelation over the book, over some of these myths, you begin to see it for what it really is. And the historical point of view fits in there perfectly. There's another myth, another illusion called the idealistic approach. 
The idealistic approach takes everything from the book of Revelation and super-spiritualizes it, saying that everything that is contained there is an allegory to help you grow closer to the Lord. Everything that is contained in that book is about you getting a deeper relationship to Christ. There's truth to that, yet within that viewpoint, they would want to tell you that it isn't true. All it is is perception. That is an illusion because the book of Revelation is a book of truth. Their optical illusion might look like this. This is called the breathing square. Terry's going to put that full screen and then she's going to shrink the gaps. If she shrinks the gaps, it appears to you that the blue square is actually causing this whole thing to breathe. Now, as she enlarges that gap, you can see what's going on. There's a square that's rotating in the background. Truth gets revealed as you go through it. The idealist would say that the book of Revelation is a spiritually breathing book. Truth, no question about it, but all it is is an allegory. That's the myth. You have to spread it out so that you see the whole truth of the book of Revelation. Which then takes us to the last approach for studying this book. It is called the futurist approach. This is the one that we're going to use. This is the one that I believe. This is the one that I believe as I have studied the book of Revelation is the right approach. The futurist approach says that the prophecies of this book are still waiting to be fulfilled. They have not happened yet, but they're coming because God says what he means and he means what he says. And there's a reason that those prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. God's timing is the reason. It isn't the right timing yet. Now let me chase a little rabbit with you. When we were in the, the nation of Israel three years ago, we took a tour of the temple. We went into the tunnels underneath the temple mount. We had a guide that was going to take us through there. She pointed out to us that in the year 1968, the Jews had control of the temple mount for a few hours. But after their control was given to them, after they had conquered that area, they gave control of the temple mount back to the Muslims. That didn't make any sense. And everybody in our group was saying, why would they do that? Because the Jews, more than anything, want control of the Temple Mount. They want to rebuild the temple. They are ready to rebuild the temple. They are ready for the Messiah to come. Although the Jewish people do not see it the right way, they're ready for the Messiah to come. But they also want the temple rebuilt so that they can go there and worship the God of the Old Testament. That's their ultimate goal. They had control. Why would they give it back? I asked our guide that. She said, we're not allowed to tell you. They weren't allowed to tell us because there could be a lot of different viewpoints. If you had a Muslim guide, they would have one viewpoint. If you had a Jewish guide, they would have a different viewpoint. But if you had a Christian, they would have the right viewpoint. In my estimation, I found out this lady was a Christian because this is what she said. God's timing is not right. It is not yet right for Israel to have control of the Temple Mount. Folks, that's part of what you see as you go through the futurist point of view on the book of Revelation. God's timing is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Some of what we're going to talk about in this study will cause some of you to say, hey, I totally disagree with what Phil is saying. Because there are so many different ways of approaching the book. One of the things that I always tell people is this. When you study eschatology or the end times or prophecy, it is okay to come at it from different points of view. So some of you are going to disagree with me. And I have always told you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you are free to be wrong. Absolutely free to be wrong. We're going to come at it from this approach. And please know that if you disagree, 
that's nothing that should divide us. It is nothing that should separate us. A study of eschatology or the end times or prophecy shouldn't be anything that people get upset and say, well, I'm done. Because what we will agree on, no matter what approach you come at, is the person of Jesus Christ. And this book is, if you heard it when we read it just a few minutes ago, Patty stood up here and read it. It is the revelation of... Now let's say that together a little louder with some more conviction. It is the revelation of... Oh, let's try again. It is the revelation of... Jesus Christ. There you go. That's exactly what this book is about, and we will agree on that as we see Him revealed. What you're going to see as He's revealed through this book is some amazing things. Like in chapters 1 through 3, you are going to see Him as the reigning King and priest that He is. We're going to get into chapters 4 and 5, and you're going to see Him as the glorified Lamb of God. In chapter 6 through 18, you will see Him as the righteous judge of the world. In chapter 19, Jesus will be revealed as the conquering King of kings. In chapters 20 and 21, all the way on to the end, what you will see about Jesus Christ is this. He is the bridegroom ushering His bride into the heavenly kingdom. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and all the way through, we will see all these different things about Him. It's going to be a great study. I am praying that you will be here with us as we go through it. If you're not able to be here, I'm hoping that you'll listen on the internet and stay up with us as we make our way through this whole book. Because like I said, there are some confusing elements to it, things that could make you say, I just don't know about that. I don't understand that. Beginning with this, who's the author of the book? Who is this guy, John? We know from the very beginning that he's the one who received the revelation, but who is he? Well, the Bible tells us that. John is not only the author of the book of Revelation, but he is the author of the Gospel of John. He was one of the original 12 apostles. Not only did he write those two books, but he also wrote the three letters of John that are contained right before the book of Revelation. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So he wrote five books of the New Testament. That's who John is. But knowing that is not enough. You have to know more about him, like the special relationship that he has with Jesus Christ. Hopefully you still have your Bibles with you. I'm going to take you back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. Actually, chapter 21, I'm sorry, verse 20. I hear a lot of Bibles opening, and that's been one of our prayers as well, that you would bring your Bible with you so that you can see the interwovenness of this book. We're going to be jumping all over the place, and you're going to want to be able to jump with us. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, there are some in the chair racks. Take one with you. It's our gift to you. If you would like to buy a new study Bible just for this, we have ordered some. We have them coming. There are a few extras, but if you would like to order a study Bible, talk to myself or Deanie or Matt or Beth, and we'll make sure that we get your name on a list for that. You may even want to buy one that has some room in the margins to write some notes out just so you can go back and study this later. We're in John chapter 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Peter was walking with Jesus on the beach. There had already been a miraculous catch of fish. They had eaten together. And then Jesus had reinstated Peter after the betrayal. As they were walking, Jesus was telling Peter all kinds of things that was going to happen in his life. But he looked behind him and said, what about him? And Jesus said, don't you worry about him. But don't you love the way the Bible says the one whom Jesus loved was following him? As far as I know, he was the only one of the 12 apostles that carried that title, the one whom Jesus loved. There was a special relationship 
between John and Jesus. It was there from the very beginning. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Three of the twelve apostles received nicknames from the Lord. That's a sign of a special relationship. To Simon, he said, you're going to be called Peter, which means the rock. But to James and John, these two brothers, he said, I'm going to call you Boanerges, sons of thunder. That probably speaks a great deal about their character and their behavior. They were the sons of thunder. I'm guessing these two caused more problems among the 12 apostles than anybody else. But Jesus looked at them and had a big smile on his face. I can imagine when he took them all someplace and introduced them, he'd come to James and John and say, these are the sons of thunder that you have heard so much about. There's a reason that they were that way. They were raised to be that way. Their mother brought them up to be the sons of thunder. Listen to this. We're going to go to the book of Matthew now. Chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you catch what happened? Did you catch this? Here comes mom with the Boanerges, the sons of thunder, James and John. She comes up to Jesus and in total respect and in total honesty, forthrightness, kneels down before the Lord and says, I just have something to ask of you. When you come into your kingdom, can my boys sit on your right and left above everybody else? Can they have the special places? There is not one mother here, not one mother here that can't sympathize with that. She looked at her children and said, they're just a little bit better than everybody else's. So can you give them this spot? So you can imagine that this mom is thinking, yeah, 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 let them run wild a little bit. They're just boys. But when you really see them for who they are, they're spectacular boys. The other apostles were pretty upset with it. Not hard to imagine either. And they said, hold it. That's not fair. But Jesus looked at him and said, those places are reserved for those that have prepared, been prepared by my Father in heaven. But you two, James, John, you really up to the task? Because here's what it means. You're going to have to drink from the same cup I drink from. You're going to have to go through some things that you don't want to go through. Are you really up for that? Do you really think you can handle it? And you heard them say it. We can. They had no idea, none whatsoever, that that would be tested by God. Go with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12. Starting in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. 
When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Herod had him arrested because they were Christians. James became the brother of John, one of the Boanerges, the sons of thunder. James became the very first apostle to be martyred for his faith. He became the first one to die. He drank of the same cup. James knew what had happened to Jesus, and when he was in jail awaiting that sentence to be carried out, can't you imagine the number of times that he thought to himself, this is what Jesus said to me, I'm going to have to drink from the same cup. He was willing, and he willingly died. Peter was in jail as well. James died, first one of them. The others had to be pretty worried. John is the only one of the 12 apostles that would not die a horrendous, martyred death. But his life would be anything but easy. Domitian was the emperor that took Nero's place after he died in Rome. About the year 90 AD. In the year 90 AD, he decided that he was going to persecute Christians in a whole new way. And the biggest and worst and most horrible persecution any Christian could go under is to hear a, a ruler of this world say, you have to bow down and worship me. And that's exactly what Domination did. He said, everyone's going to have to worship me. And John said, not me. So Domination, understanding that he was a leader of the church, said, then this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to throw you into a vat of boiling oil. And he got that vat together and he raised the temperature until it was literally boiling. And church tradition says they grabbed hold of John and they threw him into that vat. And somehow he miraculously not only escaped, but escaped unscathed. God knew what he was doing. Domination was furious about it. So he had him exiled to a prison island, the island of Patmos. That's where he was at when he received the revelation. That's where he was at when he wrote this letter. There are some scholars that would tell you it took him eight years to write the whole thing down because he was incarcerated there for eight years until Domination died. When he died, the new emperor called for John's release and John went back to the city of Ephesus and he stayed there until he died of a ripe old age because Jesus said that's how he would die. He spent eight years in prison for his faith and that entire eight years saw him writing out the revelation that we know as the last book of the Bible. In the year 98 AD, this book was given to all of the churches and it began to circulate around and that's when they read it to each other. John, one of the Boanerges, one of the sons of thunder is the author of it. He has a special place in Jesus' heart. All through the Bible, when you see God change the name of somebody, he has a special mission for them. It happened with Abraham. It happened with Jacob. It happened with Peter. It happened with James and John. They received nicknames, new names from God. You know how that works. All the men in this room know how that works. You may have a group of men that are really close to you, but those that are really close, they receive new names. They receive nicknames from you. It might be chief or sport or, or governor or captain or whatever it might be or, or hunting camp names that other people don't understand. But they do because there's a close connection there. John had that type of connection and he wrote about it. 
But again, we, we may even get to a place where we can understand the author, and that makes perfect sense to us. We can understand that the Holy Spirit was giving the words. We can understand that the Bible says at one point an angel was the one that was delivering the revelation to John. At another point it says the elder was delivering the message to John. All through the Bible you will see the words of God and you will see red letters if you're in a red letter edition of the Bible where it looks like Jesus is speaking. All of those different people are giving the revelation to John but still some of it can be confusing. For some people the confusion comes in believing that the entire book of Revelation is nothing but a book of curses. They read passages like this in Revelation chapter 9 starting in verse 1. Turn there with me. Let let me hear the, the pages turning. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. That's where some of the belief that it is a book of curses comes from. But it is so much more than that. It is not just the judgment of God, it contains also the blessings of God. Through the book, you find the very significant use of the word, or of the number seven. There's going to be seven vials, and seven trumpets, and seven seals, and those bring with them the judgments of God upon the unbelieving earth, and upon the entire earth. But there's another seven, and this one really matters. It is the seven blessings of God. And there are seven blessings that are revealed throughout the course of the book. Let me take you through them real fast, starting in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. We're going to skip over to chapter 14, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Skipping over now to chapter 19, verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be the priest of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. And then verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. There's the seven blessings of the book of Revelation, and they are directed towards God's children. As we go through this and we see Jesus Christ revealed for who he is, those blessings become very evident, very evident. One of those blessings is the fact that this book was written not for non-believers, 
but for believers. It was written to the church. It was written to you. Back in chapter 1, we read these words. Verses 5 and 6. Well, I'll start back up at the last half of verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Here's what you have to know going into this. You are already a priest and a king in the kingdom of God. And this book was written to you as such, as a king and a priest. When you became a child of God, those are the new names you received. Those are the titles that you received. You are a king and a priest in the child of God. Royalty in his eyes. You want to know how I know that to be true beyond the shadow of any doubt? Because you have received and will receive the triple crown effect that comes only from the Lord. I'll show you what I mean. I'm going to take you to the book of 2 Timothy as we close this out. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. These are the Apostle Paul's words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul is looking forward to the crown of righteousness that he will receive when he walks into the kingdom of heaven. That crown will accompany the one that he already has, which is the crown of life. The Bible speaks very plainly about it. And both of those crowns, as they sit on Paul's head and every other believer's head, every other king and priest in the kingdom of God, will come to their full glory when the crown of glory accompanies them. You see, within Christ we have received the triple crown. It's amazing because we are his children. That will be revealed to you over and over and over again as we go through this book. Let me say to you again, it has been my prayer that you will be here for this study and you will hear what we have to say, what the Bible has to say, because with all of those words that come right out of God's word are great blessings and the Lord is ready to pour them out on his children. So we go through this. I know you'll have a lot of questions. Hopefully they're going to get answered. If not, we'll be available to help answer them afterwards. I want to encourage you to stand with me. We're going to pray with one another now. And then Ray's just going to offer our invitation. Father in heaven, the blessings of these books, of this book, it's mind-blowing. Really mind-blowing. Which then turns into being a heart-blowing experience and a soul-bending experience. It causes us, Lord, at times to feel like we're being hung just a little bit. That conviction is good and we thank you for it because we know it comes from your spirit. Other times, Lord, as we read the words of this book, final book of the Bible, we are just inspired and reminded of your great love for us and reminded of our love for you. Lord, that's my prayer, that those things, those ideas, those concepts, those very real thoughts and emotions will drive every one of us. Father, help us to live in such a way that we communicate that with everyone else around us. 
would you take these next few moments in our service and declare them holy. In Jesus' name, amen.